song this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be able to worship with you in this new location, joy to be a part of this community, for us to have a, a permanent home. Uh, for the past seven years, the church began in 2014, uh, and in one of the most difficult uh, periods probably of my life, 2020-2021, uh, God saw fit to, to move us into a space and uh, we've, we've seen over the, the past several months just God's generosity towards us and love for us and kindness towards us. Uh, as I just recounted this morning, the different places we've been, the seasons of ministry that we've been in, uh, God has been so faithful to us along the way. And we're thankful for uh, just this next season. Uh, we hope and pray uh, that you would sense uh, a sense of ownership, and as we've seen uh, numerous people get involved with actually even some of the build-out and some of the care and some of the cleaning and some of the tech and everything that you, you see here, kids' ministry coming back online, uh, we, we just are so blessed to have so many different giftings and people taking ownership in our church, countless hours that have been put in. And uh, we just want to say thank you from us, from pastors, to you guys, uh, because you guys have given so much to make this happen. And so we thank you for your generosity. Um, as a way of introduction, let me give a few announcements uh, about some things coming up, and then we'll kick back into 1 John chapter 5. Um, Many of you have given already to support the work of Ecclesia. Uh, you've supported us through our Measurably More offering. And uh, just would, one, just want to thank you for your generosity. Uh, but two, just to encourage you as we continue, there are continual needs. Uh, we're going to continue, as you'll see over the next few weeks. Uh, there's st still other uh, remaining items that we're seeking to build out here. And uh, we just encourage you to get involved in that as we use this building to be a blessing to our community, and we do that through your faithful giving. Uh, Christmas Eve this Friday night, it's crazy to think that Christmas is uh, less than a week away. Friday night, this coming Friday, is Christmas Eve. Some of you are shocked right now, and you got to do your Christmas shopping still. Good luck this week, all right? Uh, but 5.30, we're going to have a candlelight service back here. We look forward to doing that. And then next Sunday, we'll be back here, same place, same time. Would encourage you to join us. If, uh, if you're here, you're just getting uh, kind of, this is maybe your first step in. We want to welcome you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. Uh, but there's numerous ways to get involved and, and serve. Uh, you can find on the Ecclesia app ways in which you can serve and would just encourage you to do that. Um, let me pray for us. Then we're going to jump back into the text this morning. Father, thank you for our, our time already. Thank you for how you're, you're meeting us in this place. Thank you for how uh, just your generosity and love towards us and how we've experienced and seen your faithfulness throughout the years. Thank you for just this next season of ministry and the opportunity we get to be a part of this community and be a blessing to this community. Lord, I pray in the next few moments you would give us eyes to hear, uh, eyes to see, ears to hear uh, the things that you want to teach us this morning. Lord, open this, this text. Give us understanding. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in the book of 1 John for the past 9, 10, 11 weeks. We've been walking through this letter. And uh, if you haven't been with us, this, this letter has, has basically been talking about what does it look like to refine our doctrine? And we talk about doctrine, it, it, what do we believe? 
And, and this book has done that. And, and we typically walk through books of the Bible, if you're brand new stepping in. Uh, it's, it's a way for us to really help understand the context of what's happening. There's a lot behind the scenes. You're even going to see today, maybe you, you heard this verse read, and it's like, what in the world is that, that passage talking about? And it's helpful to kind of understand the context in which it's written. And that's what we do. We walk through books of the Bible. And one of the things that 1 John is about is helping shape doctrine. There was a lot of false teachers. There was a lot of false heresies that were being taught within the church. And so John is writing to this church and instructing them, these are the things we are to believe. But not only was he trying to refine doctrine, he was trying to sharpen obedience. These are the things, as a Christ follower, that you would step in. If you say you believe these things, they should shape your behavior. They should shape how you live. And we also see that it increases our devotion, our love, our, our, our passion for Jesus. And, and this is what John is writing. And if you go back to the very first week when we first started the letter of 1 John, it says in 1 John 1.1 this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And here's what John is basically saying. Hey, the Jesus guy that you guys have been talking about, I know him. If you've seen the movie Elf with Will Ferrell, right? You know what I'm talking about. Will Ferrell overhears someone talking about Santa Claus and Will Ferrell, the elf. He says what? I know him. There's like, it's not just like know about him. It's not like he's just some foreign object out there and, and, and maybe, you know, I have some, you know, strange relationship with him. No, like I know him. And John is writing not only to the church and like helping firm up, hey, this person that you're considering and wrestling with about who Jesus is, I know Jesus. I've seen him, experienced him, I've touched him, I've walked with him. I know Jesus. And so he brings us this firsthand knowledge. And if, if we start the book with this idea of this is who Jesus is, I know Jesus, what's interesting is he's going to end his letter because we're in the last chapter of, of 1 John. He's ending with Jesus. And so today's passage, if I were to kind of sum it up, it's all about Jesus. He's going to give testimony about Jesus. And he doesn't just know about Jesus, he knows Jesus. If you ask John, John, what is Christianity all about? He's saying, it's all about Jesus. Christianity is all about Jesus. If you ask John, John, what should my life be all about? He would say, your life should be all about Jesus. The best life, the best possible way to live is a life all about Jesus. And so John is bringing us in and saying, it's all about Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so what we're going to look at and what we're going to jump in is we're going to understand this idea of like life is found in Jesus. The advent of life, when we talk about advent, this is advent season. Advent basically means coming. The coming of life. Life came through Jesus. Life is not found in anything else other than Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, our text that we read today, says this. And this is the testimony. What's the testimony? That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Life is in the Son. Life is in Jesus. It's all about Jesus, so we want to make sure we have Jesus because we all want life. 
Now let me ask you, what is the greatest gift you've ever received? Greatest gift, and I want you to think back, it's Christmas, maybe it's wrapped under the tree. The greatest gift you've ever received, I want you to think back. As a kid, maybe your mind goes back to waking up and and seeing that, that new bike underneath the tree or whatever it was. I had, like, my favorite gifts were weird gifts, okay? Uh, we went, when Amber and I first got married, we were watching, like, home videos from when I was a kid. I was, like, nine years old, and I got a printer for Christmas. And this was, like, the coolest gift I ever received, right? A printer. And so we've, we've laughed throughout our marriage, like, when I bought a new printer, because I was, like, so excited, so stoked that I got a printer, as a nine-year-old, that was so cool, right? I remember our, my first computer. It was a Tandy computer. Anybody remember Tandy computers? No one? Okay. few? Nope. Okay. 40 years old up here. Um, you guys are much younger, all right? Tandy computers. I had a Tandy computer. And, and, and like, I remember this was an exciting gift. I remember one year, and, and it was funny because this is what I said on the home video, I didn't get blue jeans, I got black jeans. And I was like, these aren't blue jeans, these are black jeans. And I was like, so excited because I got black jeans for Christmas. This was like some of my favorite gifts. What's your favorite gift? And let me ask you this, what if you found out your favorite gift was actually a sham? It wasn't real. It's just make-believe. I remember when I was in, uh, I think it was my freshman year of college, I was, uh, I was in a worship band at the time, and our drummer was celebrating his birthday, and so we decided we'd buy him some lottery tickets for his birthday. So we went out, we bought him some lottery tickets, and we decided to sneak in. They had like fake lottery tickets that you could purchase. You were guaranteed to win. And we kind of slipped that in. So we gave him a, like a roll of 10 lottery tickets. And there was one that was fake. And he was highly optimistic. You know, he was like, hey, if I win, you know, like our, our band, we're going to tour. I'll buy us all new equipment. I mean, again, super optimistic in our college days, right? And he had all these promises. And so one by one, he sat there and he scratched off the lottery ticket And we were just waiting for the one, you know, he would scratch it off and be a millionaire. And you wouldn't believe, like, his reaction, he believed he received the greatest gift ever. He scratched that off, and it was like one million, scratched it off again, two million. And we're not advocating for, like, going out and buying lottery tickets here. There's great ways to steward your resources. Uh, But this is what we did. And he scratched this off, and all of a sudden, he's a millionaire, this is unbelievable, and he's so excited, and he's like cheering, he's like, you and me, I was like, hey, let me see it, and he's like, no, and all of a sudden, his demeanor changes, right, like, his life is changing before us, and, and he's not sharing with us anymore, all those dreams of where our band was going to go and where he's going to take us, he's like, no, I'm not sharing this greatest gift I ever received, and he's like, this is, I can't believe it, I'm like, read the back, read the back, and, and you know, he's still just overwhelmed and excited, and eventually on the back he reads that, like, this is a phony, this is a fake, and he hated us for the rest of his life, right? Imagine coming to find out that everything you dreamed of, everything that you've put your hope in, everything you've based your life around is a sham. That's what John is addressing, John is speaking to a community of people 
who have begun to wrestle with some of the doubts about, like, do I really have life? Do I really have eternal life? Do I really have this gift? And that's why the passage, kind of a theme passage for all of 1 John is, is verse 13 that says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have eternal life. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. And what's interesting about this passage is, is he's writing to a group of believers. He's writing to a group of people who believe, who have faith, who know Jesus, but they're wrestling with it. What's interesting, if you go back and look in John chapter 20, if we read John's gospel, in John's gospel in John chapter 20, he talks about the purpose of the gospel of John. The purpose of the gospel of John in John chapter 20, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciple, which are not written in this book, which basically is saying there's a lot more that happened in the life of Jesus than what's been recorded here. This is just a snapshot. But he says, but these are written to you, why? So that you may believe. So it's a different crowd of people. John is, is writing in his gospel to help people have faith, to help people move to a place of belief. But in John's letter, the letter of 1 John, he's writing to people who already believe. He's writing to people who have doubts. And maybe you're here in this room this morning, you're walking in and you're like, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling, I have doubts. And I want you to hear us say, that is actually a sign of maturity, not immaturity. Wrestling with doubts, wrestling and, and really just having concerns over your faith and what your life is built upon is actually very, very healthy. And that's why I would say our first point that I really want to make in this text is this. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is healthy. Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author in New York City, says this. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. If you were with me a few weeks ago, you can leave that up on the screen for a little bit longer. Uh, I talked about Tim Keller. Tim Keller was diagnosed with cancer in the last year. And if there's anything that would shake your faith, if there's anything that would cause you to doubt the goodness of God, if there's anything to doubt whether or not like I truly have life, it's something like cancer, it's something like a tragedy like that that shakes us at our core to help us understand like do I believe what I say I really believe? And what Tim Keller is saying is is actually you need to wrestle and if you don't wrestle, it's in times of tragedy that you're going to be unprepared. He said a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their friends, but their neighbors. It's no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them, just because your parents believed and it's been passed down, I mean, that's a great foundation, but you need to know why you believe what you believe. I did student ministry for several years, and, and we wanted to help students really own their faith, like take grasp. This is why I believe what I believe. 
Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive and just as important for our current situation. Such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to do what? To respect and understand those who doubt. Hey, listen. Justin Bendel, the pastor, I've doubted. I've questioned my faith, and you should doubt and question your faith. The Word of God is not scared of your questions. God is not scared of your questions. You can bring your concerns and your questions to God. And I, and I say all that, we're in a time and period where the, the term deconstruction has been thrown around, where people are really deconstructing their faith, where they're finding out, like, the things that I've built my life upon, I want to kind of break those things down to see if, if it still stands. And what's interesting about this is I've, I've, I've heard over and over again, and even I heard in a recent interview with a well-known pastor who began doubting his faith, he, ba- he basically said, I have begun to question what I've built my life upon. And Carl Truman, who wrote The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, goes, to suddenly discover something that most of us be- have been aware of is an indicative of a lack of depth of faith in the first place. It's like, why haven't you questioned those things already? The idea of deconstruction being this kind of new and trendy term, it's kind of like, why have you not began to question these already? And I want you to really hear, like, you have permission to question. You have permission to doubt and wrestle. Now, John wants to speak word of wisdom in that and going, I want you to know that there, are, there is evidence and there's things that I can help build your faith. I don't want you to stay in this place of doubt. I want to help bolster your faith, but it's okay. John is writing to a group of people who are wrestling, and it's okay to wrestle. God is not fearful. And your questions will not only give you confidence and assurance, but it will help you walk with others who are questioning. The second thing I'll show you is this, and the reason why I started with that is because of the case that, that John's about to make. John is, is about to step into kind of like this courtroom setting. He's calling witnesses, and he's like, I got three witnesses, and it's kind of a weird phrase, the water, the blood, and the spirit, and he kind of personifies these, these three elements, like I'm, I'm going to call the, the water and, and, and water, hey, would you testify for us? Would you, you tell us, like, what, what is your testimony about the life of Jesus? And, and blood, blood, will you testify for us? And spirit, and, and it's this weird phrasing. And, and here's what I would basically want to help you understand by this. To know this gift of eternal life, to know this gift is to know Jesus. And what John is helping us do, again, I said he starts with Jesus and he ends with Jesus, What he's going to do right here in this passage, he's like, let me help you understand who Jesus is. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. It's a good thing that they agree, right? It would really kind of wreck their testimony if they didn't agree. 
If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe makes God a liar because he's not believed. Now, if you hear all of this, uh, I, I'm wondering, like, what in the world is this talking about? It's really difficult. It's really, and to be honest, I've read, I've studied, I've listened, I've searched, and here's what I would tell you. There's many different viewpoints, and I think it's helpful for us to understand what are the many different viewpoints, and what is the consensus between them all. So really quickly, let me help you understand what water, blood, spirit, them testifying what that means. One person said, the water and the blood talks about the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus. If you go back to the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, it says this, the Spirit of God hovered over the baptism of Jesus, and it said, this is my beloved Son. So you see the Spirit present. You see the Spirit testifying about the nature and character of Jesus. Jesus saying, or the Spirit of God saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is prophetic. This is uh, answering that call. This is, we see the, the, the pointing of this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. We see that. And then we go to the blood, the blood being the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we see these, these uh, like personifications of these elements, water and blood, talking about the baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you're anything like me, I'm like, well, how does that give us confidence? Because all these things are meant to assure us in our faith. And I'm like, I don't really know that they do. Let's keep going. Water and blood. Where else have we heard that? Well, Jesus was speared, and, and what's interesting, when we talk about the death of Jesus, when he hung on the cross, it says a spear was placed under his rib cage, and out came water and blood. And we're like, well, what, what does that mean? Well, there was a lot of discrepancy, believe, wondering whether or not Jesus actually died on the cross. Was he just in a moment, like, did he faint? Did he just pass out? Was he truly dead? Because the resurrection is really kind of hard to, to, like, wrap our mind around. Like, someone rose from the grave, like, came back. Like, I, I haven't seen that in my lifetime. Like, I don't have an uncle that can bring somebody back to life, right? I mean, that's unique. And so we haven't seen something like that. So maybe Jesus didn't truly die and, and if we can take away the resurrection, then we can take away the claim and supernatural power of like what he, what he accomplished. But they're saying out came water and blood. And what that showed is, is like as he's breathing on the cross and as his, his blood is literally filling with water. And that to pierce the heart and out comes water and blood, it would give evidence of this decreased oxygen in his life, and basically he would die of a heart attack. And so we see this idea of water and blood, referencing that Jesus truly died and truly rose. Maybe we go back to the Old Testament priest. When you look at the symbolism of water and blood and, and the Spirit throughout the, the entire Old Testament and New Testament, you go back, and the Old Testament priests in Leviticus, what would they do? They would be cleansed. They would cleanse with water. They'd be cleaned with water. And as they would be cleansed with water, what would they do? They would go and they'd make sacrifices of, of blood, and this sacrifice would bring forgiveness of sins. And they would be anointed with oil, which would be this sign of the Spirit of God anointing them and coming upon them. And we see this, this ultimately this prophetic kind of picture and kind of type of Jesus, of these Old Testament priests, that Jesus would be the high priest, that Jesus would come and we'd see in the 
the nature and character of Jesus, that Jesus is the one who can truly forgive sins. Because Jesus would come and he was, he was already clean. And Jesus would become the blood sacrifice himself. And so we see this picture. And then maybe we go back and there's the historical approach. And the historical approach is we see the water in the beginning as God looked down and the Trinity was there in creation. And it says that the Spirit of God hovered there in Genesis 1. It says, and, and then the, the land was formed. And we see this picture and we see uh, the judgment and the cleansing of the, the flood in, in Genesis chapter 6. And we see that the Israelites, when they took off in, in Exodus, as they passed through the water, and we see this, this symbolism all throughout, and that Jesus would, would come through the water. Jesus would be baptized. And we see this historical approach. And maybe it's all of them. And, and I could probably speculate, and I could wrestle with a lot of these, and, 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 and here's what I would say. Here's the, here's the conclusion that I came to. What I find interesting in the passage is one phrase, because it says he came by water and blood and not by water only. He's making this distinction that is super unique, and we're like, well, what's, what's going on? And again, that's why it's helpful for us to go back and look at the context of the passage, the Gnostics, the, the false teachers of the day that were teaching in this time frame, believed this, that Jesus, when he came on the earth, he was fully divine and fully man. He had a, he had a human nature, but he had a divine nature, and they believed not only did, did Jesus come, but eventually the divine nature of, of God that was in Jesus departed from him before crucifixion. Now, you may ask like, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, you don't have atonement. You don't have forgiveness of sins. You don't have, like, we are still in our sins if the God-man did not die, okay? And so they believed that the divine nature of God departed from Jesus before going to the cross, that God didn't die on the cross, and you don't have the atonement. And to me, that would probably, if, if that didn't happen, then I would probably lose confidence whether or not I actually have eternal life. It's knowing that God himself was sent into the world, that God himself took on our sin, that God himself died and was resurrected, that I can have assurance. And so what John is going to describe here, this is who Jesus is. Here's the nature and character of Jesus, and it is so important. It's so important that we have the true Jesus, that we have the real character of Jesus. Assurance comes through knowing the true identity of Jesus. Point number three, this gift has been given to us by God. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. God gave. God gave a gift. And if you look at the definition of a gift, a gift is not something, you don't earn gifts. The gifts that you're going to, like none of the gifts that are under the tree are, are gifts that you've earned or you've performed or you've, you know, you're, you're just going to receive those. Those have been given in love. A gift is something voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation. 
This is what God has done. God has given us the gift of eternal life, and it is without compensation. How many of us have received a call, and it's like, you want a free trip? And how many of us know that it's not really a free trip, right? Like, there's, there's always a trick. There's always a catch, right? And they're like, sure, come on this full expense paid and sit in the seminar for four hours, and we'll tell you why you should buy this timeshare. And, and you know, like, there's always a cost, you know, and if you ever want to have any fun with those people, like the people who are called and like, you've won a million dollars. Like, you should just play into that. It's really fun. I promise it goes well. But I wonder if one of the many reasons we struggle or doubt our faith is we don't think we deserve it. We don't think we deserve the gift. And the truth is we don't. We don't deserve the gift. We couldn't earn the gift. Some of us, we, we wonder, like, well, what do I need to do to get this gift? And all you, we have to do to get the gift of eternal life is receive it. It's a gift. God gave us eternal life. All we have to do is receive the gift. It's God's gracious gift to sinners. We read in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, he didn't give his life to the obedient. He didn't give this life to the righteous. He gave the, this life to any who would receive it. It's so, it's all about receiving. Every other faith system outside of Christianity is based on performance. You may say, well, what about works? What about good works? What, surely we're called to do good works. Absolutely. But works are the fruit, not the focus. You may have a tendency to read the book of 1 John and say it's all about works, but you need to go back and read 1 John 1.1, and it's talking all about fellowship with God. And out of fellowship with God, we don't focus on our works, it's the fruit. As we fellowship with God, the fruit of our fellowship is good works. God is going to produce that in us. And so if you're here this morning, I, I hope you hear that God has offered each of us the gift of eternal life, fellowship with God. Point number four, whoever has Jesus has life. Now, you might be here and you're like, what is life? And we think about eternal life. What is eternal life? And a lot of us, when we think about eternal life, we think about it's like this thing out, out there, right? And we think about maybe as like an endless period of time. And maybe to some of us, that sounds really terrible. Like, what is, like, one thing you want to do for an endless period of time. And you're like, I don't, is that really awesome? I don't know. And so we wrestle. And, and here's what I would help you understand. Eternal life is not just quantity of life, but quality of life. It's not just about how much life we're going to get, like in the sense of time. Like this endless infinity period of time. It's about the quality of life that we receive. When you, when you read the Bible, when you read 1 John chapter 1, it's the thing that John is highlighting here is it's fellowship with God forever. It's enjoyment of God forever. It's this fullness where no death, no sickness, no pain, no struggles, that we're not sitting here trying to wrestle, trying to figure out how to make it by. It's complete fulfillment forever in the presence of God. We look back, it's the garden life. It's Genesis chapter 3, before sin entered the world. 
and everything was broken. A life lived close by, with God, in the presence of God, in the protection of God. Eternal life is, not, is a current possession, not a coming possession. What's interesting, it says God gave us eternal life. It's not he will give us. It's past tense. You already got it. So if you receive the gift of eternal life, like you're, you can experience it now. And this is crazy. It's not just something in the future. Like it's, it's like this unwrapped gift that we've been promised, but we've never opened it yet. I think about Clark Griswold when he's in his attic, Christmas vacation, opening the presents from years past that like have never been opened, right? And I'm like, the gift of eternal life shouldn't just be sitting in our attic, tucked away. Like, it's something that we can receive right now and experience right now. God has given us, past tense, the gift of eternal life. And eternal life is a person, not a place. It's all about Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1, 3 through 4, it says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowships with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, it's this picture of union with the Trinity. And there's nothing better. Ray Ortland said, The worst this life can shove down our throats, but with the nearness of Jesus is heaven on earth. Quite simple, like, uh, life stinks without Jesus. Life can be pretty terrible but it can be heaven on earth with Jesus. He says, the best this life can give, but without Jesus is a living hell. Here's my question. Where are you looking for life? Where are you looking for life? Life is in the sun. It's in a person. He describes this. He says, anyone who has the sun has life. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, how do I know if I, I have the Son? Anyone who has the Son has life. Anyone who does not have the Son does not have life. And interesting enough, I, I look back and it says in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And I was like, has the testimony of who? Well, has the testimony of water, blood, and spirit. And I kind of began questioning this. I'm like, what, what would it look like to have the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit, and it's in myself, it's in me. I have the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit in me. How do I know I have the Son? Three questions. Number one, water. Do I experience the purifying, cleansing work of Jesus in my life? If you read the book of 1 John, we see that there is a purifying work. There's a call to obedience. But it is God who is purifying. And I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm just like, if you look over the course, the trajectory of your life, do you see a purifying pattern in your life, a purifying cleansing work. This is what the water came to do. When we're baptized, that is a symbol of the cleansing work that God does in our heart, in our lives. 
You want to know if you have the Son? You want to know if you have life? Do you sense a purifying work of Jesus in your life? The blood. Do I experience the nearness of the Father because of forgiveness offered by the blood of Jesus? Because of the blood of Jesus, we are forgiven, meaning we're no longer in guilt and shame. We're not running from our Father. We're not doing like Adam in Genesis chapter 3 and running and hide in shame. But we can come, that we can stand boldly because of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ allows us to come near to the Father. Do you experience nearness with the Father because of the blood of Jesus? Do you experience that, the closeness, the intimacy with God the Father? And the Spirit, do I experience the empowering presence of God through the Spirit living inside of me? When we read about it in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church, it, like, people looked upon, they thought they were drunk. I mean, it, it, it became the sense of just uncontrollable life and joy and laughter and fellowship and love, the Spirit produced this in them. And I think it's a great question that we, we ask ourselves, do we experience the empowering presence of God? So here's what I would say in closing. Ecclesia, listen. If there's anything, the reason Ecclesia exists, the reason we're here in this community, the reason we want to see the church move forward and advance it's because we want people to know the gift of life. The gift of eternal life. Life that is in the sun. We want people to experience that. And here's what I would tell you this morning. If you're here and you're wrestling and you're questioning, know that you're in good company with early Christians, with early saints. But here's what I would tell you. You've been, given, you've been given the greatest gift in the world. It's not a sham. It's real. It's real. He who has the Son has life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this this testimony, this picture, the, the reality. And the reality is, Lord, most of us do struggle at times. It seems hard to believe that there's someone who cares for us enough, who loves us enough, that would be willing to make a sacrifice of themselves to give me life. That's crazy. But Lord, in humility, we receive that gift this morning. We receive that gift knowing that it, it's not through anything that we do. It's not by, by anything that we earn. But we receive the gift of eternal life. And in receiving, Lord, we have so much to give. We have so much to do. You have so much that you want to produce in us. And so, Lord, I, I pray this morning, when we look at the, the advent of Jesus, that we wouldn't wait. We're not waiting for eternal life, but we would 
receive the eternal life that's already been given. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help each of us to trust, to remain faithful. Lord, that you would put loving people in our lives to help us keep moving forward, to wrestle with things in an honest way. And Lord, that you would give us the confidence and boldness that you talk about in 1 John chapter 5, 13, that you want us to know that we have it. You want to give us that confidence. So Lord, I'm thankful that no one in this room this morning has to guess, has to wonder, has to hope, but we can know. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.